my love of Mamma Mia, so I was really conflicted about this one. I was like, I kind of want the world to know who I am in my truest of hearts, but also... I move away from the mic when I sing. <laughs> You're just humming now. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm feeling uh, vaguely accomplished, which is nice. I've been battling a bunch of additional performance things this week, and I think I have a couple of wins. So that's always nice. Yeah, you've really invested heavily lately in performance world. Does your client or your application have a high volume of users or is it more for other performance concerns you're addressing? Uh, Reasonably high. We're probably somewhere between 10 and 50 requests a second. So it's enough that if at any point anything in the system starts to behave badly, then requests can back up. We'll start to scale dynos. Like it, that's not a huge volume in my mind, but it's enough that you have to be careful. And we've seen cases where little backups start to go. There's also certain, they'll occasionally run like a promo or things like that that pull in more traffic. And when that happens, we've seen the app start to fall over. So we've recognized that there are these performance rough edges that in those worst moments start to fall over. And it's like, all right, we got to get ahead of this. So we've been being somewhat purposeful and trying to get ahead of them. There's another one of those promotional periods that's coming up i think in october Uh, and there's actually we're going to have a double header of them and so it's a little bit scary actually how that's going to perform within the system so we're trying to get ahead of things and as a result i've been focusing a lot of my time on these sort of performance adventures that's a funny thing because it's on one hand it's like marketing is doing too well in the sense that then it's causing problems for the application and the load. And then it's tough for the engineers to then figure out how to scale with marketing's great job. So yeah, so I'm curious. So what are the uh, vague sense of accomplishments that you have from this week? Well, actually, so it's a story in two parts. And so I'm going to tell you the first part first, which isn't the performance fix, but it's the context as to how we got here. And then later, probably, when we're older, I'll tell you about the performance fix. Uh, <laughs> older in like, you know, five minutes from now. Older, yeah, yeah, right? it's not like that. Uh, okay. I want to hear how you're doing as well. I don't want to. <laughs> um, but part of the context here is the app that I'm working on. It's a large Rails code base that is basically an API server. That's the primary thing that it's doing. And then there are two mobile apps, an Android and an iOS app. And a lot of the effort, a lot of the focus is on those mobile clients and on giving a very nice, rich, interactive experience. So most of the work that I'm doing is on that REST API. But we did at one point take a step back and ask... There were some questions about redesigning the API in various ways, and I had dropped the word GraphQL into a handful of conversations, as I will do. And so we took a step back and said, like, actually, do we want to consider GraphQL here? And so we had an initial discussion. I then did a quick spike. So I introduced GraphQL in a branch in the code base, stood that up against staging so that folks could poke at it. And then we had uh, actually like two more conversations around it and deciding whether or not to transition to GraphQL. And it's interesting because the nature of the API, the way it's structured now, there are a lot of very deeply nested queries or there are endpoints that return data that isn't just here's the list of users, but it's here's the categories and for each category, here's the courses and for each course, here's the videos. And that's not exactly the data model, but that's like I'm thinking back to upcase times because that was a similar thing that we did there. 
But it's that sort of deeply nested structure that actually lends itself really well to GraphQL. We've definitely felt some friction around the client and the server and the flexibility in that interface, what the client can ask for. Well, they can't really ask for anything. They just say, give me the thing that you give me. And so the server responds with what is a very consistent data structure, data payload there. And there were definitely some, at least I I was looking at it and I was feeling a lot of pain that I felt like GraphQL could actually solve. Uh, So we had that interesting discussion. We had the spike. We had a lot of objections around caching and e-tags because we rely pretty heavily on those in the current structure of the API. And inherently, GraphQL doesn't do that like by default, but we were able to convince ourselves that that would actually be fine. We could solve that and maybe even end up in a slightly better position. Uh, But at the end of the day, we opted not to go with GraphQL, which was an interesting place for me uh, and the team to end up. I think it's the right choice, but it was an interesting one to get to. That is interesting. Yeah, I'd love to understand what trade-offs, like what pushed you in the direction of staying with the REST API instead of moving towards the GraphQL endpoint? Because especially you have two clients that are using this and are using these APIs. So that pushes me even further into the direction of GraphQL, even though I honestly haven't used it on a project for reals. I'm excited to do so one day, but it seems like a, a nice reason to move in that direction. We actually have the two primary mobile apps. Those are definitely the the like most important consumers of the API. We also have an admin system that now consumes sort of a variant of the API, but it's designed in the same style. And then we also have a handful of smaller React apps that are basically very stylized landing pages for different onboarding flows, but they are also driven by the API. So we have actually a handful of different consumers, which again, I think for me, would definitely push me in the direction of GraphQL. The more variety of clients that I have, the more I want to expose that flexibility. But at the end of the day, the main thing that made the decision, pretty much everyone came around to the idea that GraphQL would have some benefits, would probably be fine or potentially better in terms of performance. But at the end of the day, the switching cost is there. It's a real thing. We would have to you know, rebuild this whole thing out and transition the clients. But we'd also have to maintain two versions because mobile apps, you know, it's not like a browser where it just changes the next time people reload the browser. We have long tails of people on very old versions of the mobile apps. And the other thing that's interesting is the design of these mobile clients is they actually end up essentially sinking down most of the core content from the system on startup. And they'll actually re-request that data whenever they come out of background or restart for the first time in a little while. But they end up caching all of that data locally. And then they're working from essentially a local database. They actually use, I want to say it's RealmDB, something like that. If that's not true, I'll update and put the correct thing in the show notes. But they use a local database system within the mobile clients, and they basically live in their own world there. So it's really the API for them is, in a lot of cases, really more of a sync operation as opposed to... Uh, think about like Facebook, where you're navigating to different pages and each page that you're going to, there's no way to like sync all the content of Facebook down to your phone. That's just not going to happen. And so in that model, GraphQL really shines where each page has a bespoke query that's just for it. And we want to be able to evolve that over time. In this case, where we're just sending a bunch of structured data down, it wasn't enough of a win to warrant the cost of switching. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, from the context of that cost that you mentioned of having to switch over and then maintain for both apps going forward until you can truly remove the rest endpoints. And then also the application that I'm working on does a similar strategy where the Ember application pulls down a lot of the information at the very beginning. So then that's reducing a number of the requests that are going out to the API. So yeah, sounds like y'all landed in a good spot. Indeed. And that sets the stage for the uh, eventual win that I had to have in the performance land. But I'm going to pause there and uh, I want to know what's up in your world. What have you been up to? 
So I am starting to wind down with my current client, which, as you and I have mentioned before, is always one of those unique times where it's uh, sad to like move on from someone that you've really enjoyed working with and a team that you've really grown with and gotten to know, but then also exciting because I'm not really sure what I'm going to do next. I don't know if it's going to be Elixir or Rails or I don't know, who knows. <laughs> so I'm currently thinking through now that I have like these uh, set next couple of weeks of winding down of sort of like, well, what's on my wish list? What are the things? that I started out thinking like pushing off to the things that I want to tackle. So I'm running down that sort of like mental list of what would I like to accomplish before I leave this client and go on to the next one. And then one of the fun things that I tackled this week is I updated a string column to use a Postgres enum type instead of just allowing all of the data in. So when making this change, it always feels a little bit like that tablecloth trick where you have to like pull something out immediately, but you've got all the items on top of the table that you're watching to make sure that nothing is disturbed as you're changing that underlying structure. But thankfully, we decided to make this database schema change early on in the process. So we just recently added this column because we know there's this data that we're going to want to store, but we're not truly using it in production just yet. So any data that's currently there, we don't really have to care about. We can drop all of that data. We don't have to migrate it to a new column for us to then have that data intact. So it went down in two different deploys. The first change in deploy, I told Active Record that we wanted to ignore that column because Active Record is going to cache the table columns when it loads. So I wanted to tell Active Record like, hey, just go ahead and ignore this column, pretend like it doesn't exist, which is pretty cool because then as soon as you tell Active Record, if you query like user.columns, then you'll see that it's already being ignored from that list. And then there are places in the code base that we are referencing that column. It's not really used in production just yet. It's more like in a task. So if you run something, it's going to reference that column. And we don't want that to error for any reason if someone were running this on staging. So then I added a method to the particular class. So just to give a concrete example, let's say we have a class of pet and a table of pets. And then if we have a column that's a mood on the pet table or on the pets table, then I introduced a new method that's just like def mood. So that way, if someone were to run this task and it does reference that column, it's going to see that method on the class instead. So then that way we won't run into an error. One thing I'm not certain about, though, is because when I was telling Active Record to go ahead and ignore that column, so following with that same example, if we're ignoring that column of mood, I saw from Strong Migrations, which is a gem that we've talked about before that I, I really love, and Strong Migrations really recommends that you ignore that column first. So that was really Strong Migrations credit that they reminded me like, hey, if you're doing this and dropping a column, go ahead and ignore it first so you don't run into any issues or caching problems. But I've also seen that when you run a migration, the Active Record is going to clear its cache. So I'm a little hazy as to whether that was something that I needed to do. I am glad that I went through that step because then it also reminded me to add that method. So then that way our test could continue to pass. And then also in case someone called this in production or in staging it one error. But I actually don't know. That might have been a step that I can skip now. Do you happen to know? I don't know, although I actually didn't know about the ability to tell Rails to ignore a column. So that's a that's a handy one I'm going to put in my back pocket and hold on to. I wonder if this comes up for like blue-green deployments, where you're bringing up the new version of the app before you've actually turned off all of the old one. I actually realized recently that Heroku, I thought Heroku was doing that by default. Like it spins up the new version of the app, starts to transition traffic over, and will only shut down the old one when the new one's ready. But it turns out that is not how Heroku performs. Because you get these subtle cases where if you're migrating, an old version of the code will incorrectly reference something and then the new you've migrated and it's slightly different. 
And so Heroku takes the conservative approach of saying, like, we're not going to do that. You can opt into it, and there's a, a way to do that. But then you have to specifically do that and then be much more careful with migrations. Right now, they have the thing where basically you're going to queue up some requests while there's that deployment transition happening. But otherwise, it's the, like, safe thing to do. But I did not know about the ignoring of a column. That's a nifty one that... I'll definitely keep in mind. Yeah, it's a really nice way to just, I guess, to have that extra level of safety. So it doesn't hurt to add it. But yeah, I am curious. I, I found a really nice blog post that I can share in the show notes where it references this exact sort of like deploy process of first ignoring the column and then you can safely drop the column. But then you have to do this in many deploys and how that can be a bit tedious. And they were saying that there's a change in Rails that helps with this so that even though Active Record has cached those columns, that when you run an insert, so if I were creating another pet after I've dropped the column mood, but I didn't first ignore the column. So if I have Rails running, and then if I opened up a Postgres console, and I dropped that column, and then I still create a new pet, as long as I'm not referencing that column directly, then Active Record will just let me create that record. So I don't, I don't actually know. It's just a blog post that I read that I'm very intrigued by to know if I actually need to ignore <laughs> columns or not. But it's at this point, it's a nice safety feature to have. Then for the second step is when I added the migration that actually dropped the column, creates the enum type, and created a column using that enum type. There's something else that I also learned while I was working on this particular swap from a string to an enum, is right now the data that we're taking in is from an internal team. It's not coming from a user, but we still want to you know, reject any of the values that we don't want to accept into that column. While I was adding tests to make sure that once I switched over that we were indeed using that column, I had removed that temporary method that I had added, I considered adding a validation just to have sort of like a nice error message to be like, hey, this isn't here because we do want some nice feedback from like our rig tasks or however this is running to say this is not a valid value because currently it raises and I discovered that enums totally ignore the validation. So if you have like validates go in the column name mood and inclusion for like moods.values, Active Record just says, nope, I'm just going to ignore your validation and raise the argument name error instead. And I found the particular issue and discussion that's on Rails that talks about this. And it kind of makes sense because um, they explained it as the enums are really for your systems types. And if you get to that point that you're trying to insert the wrong type into the database, that feels more like an application failure than a user failure. So that was their justification of like, even if you add a validation for a type enum, we're still going to raise instead of honoring that validation. Huh. I, I mean, I guess that sort of makes sense. Like the way you would expose an enum typically is a select dropdown. And so in theory, some person on the internet could like curl and post to your endpoint and put whatever they want in there. But in reality, people don't do that as far as I can tell. Like a small number of people do that, but they're doing that as a distributed denial of service attack, not as a, I'm going to try and post just a little bit different data. I actually, I want to take that back because people will definitely do that and try and like say, I'm an admin, <laughs> please let me in. Uh, so always sanitize on the server side, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but realistically, I don't see that failure mode happening in applications that I work on. So I sort of agree with the premise that that data shouldn't really be getting it. Like you shouldn't have a free form text field that maps to, you know, that's like a misrepresentation in the UI of how you want to handle this data. But it is still interesting that, you know, this, the Rails behaves slightly differently. And especially this is a case where I'm guessing there was silent not using of the validation. And that's the thing that always makes me sad. I want Rails to like raise on startup that you defined a validation, but we are going to ignore it. We, we've chosen to ignore it. So this line of code that you wrote, when you look at it, know that it is bad and not wanted. 
Yeah, that was the part that took me for a little bit of a ride is when I was writing those tests and then I was expecting my validation to do something to see that is it was still immediately raising. And I thought I had done something else wrong and I just couldn't figure out. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's how you write, you know, that particular validation. And then I did some Googling and found that specific issue on Rails where other folks had already had this conversation. I like what you said, though, where it makes sense to map like the values that we have in the UI, because if we're not accepting a freeform text or input from the user, then that makes sense to me too, that we would only show them valid options. And if someone goes out of their way of trying to provide an invalid option, well, we're just going to raise on your friend at that point. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me too. So that was just some fun adventures with swapping out that string column to an enum, ignoring columns, and then migrating over and then discovering validations are ignored. So yeah, it's it's been a fun week. I love when I get to do some Postgres database changes that I don't get to do most of the time, or that I don't do as often. Yeah, I've definitely been, it's been a lot of my work lately and I've really been enjoying it. It also has that nice feel where I'm pretty sure Postgres and I are going to be friends for a long time. And so anytime that I'm learning a new trick or a new way to think about database interactions, that feels like a good investment in my future. Whereas like a JavaScript framework that I'm working with, it's possible that it's going to be around sometime from now, but I wouldn't be surprised if I'm using something entirely different. Like it's surprising to me that I'm using Rails this long into my career and it hasn't been replaced by something else. Whereas the database level, that feels feels like my constant friend along this adventure of making web apps. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, all one word, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. So have we reached an age in which we're ready to return to the performance improvements that you were alluding to earlier? Yes, indeed. We're sufficiently mature now that we've uh, gone on that adventure together. <laughs> I really feel like I've built this up now, too. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's let's talk about my performance adventure. So coming back to the conversation earlier about the GraphQL API considerations, this one endpoint that I was working on this week was actually one of the main ones that pushed me in the direction of thinking that GraphQL could be a good fit. It was basically grabbing the entire content graph. So again, in like an upcase example or a, any general like learning platform, we have categories, which contain many courses, which contain many videos, and the videos have teachers and they have other metadata. They have the associated media files. So there's a lot to that hierarchy. And in this case, the way that we're exposing that is this top level categories endpoint, which serializes that entire tree. So first of all, it's a lot of data, but also it, uh, the current implementation is N plus ones just for days, for days and days and days. And that's mostly fine, or it's not good. It's not something that we wanted, but it hasn't been a priority relative other performance concerns that we've had because it's actually a very cacheable endpoint. It's basically give me all of the data. And once we do that, we can save that off. And we built in the content specific cache invalidation that we've talked about in previous episodes. So anytime the underlying data anywhere in that tree changes, we're going to bust the top level cache. So we're going to invalidate the cache in those cases. 
And I think the initial version of it, there was like three different variants that we needed to cache. So there's some conditional logic for lower level pieces of that tree, but not much. So three different versions, we run this query once each time the content changes. That's actually not that common of a thing. So it was fine. The caching was keeping us safe and we were very rarely needing to run that series of N plus one queries. So we've added a new feature where groups can have content that is specific to them. And as such, the caching is now we have a different axis. So that actually blew out the whole idea of, well, caching will just keep us safe. Because now, anytime we bust the cache, we're actually busting it for a bunch of different cache keys. So I had to start revisiting this and looking at it again as part of adding that new group-specific filtering. So actually, just a reminder to a different episode where I talked about this. Episode 244, I discussed another fix that I made to this endpoint where there was sort of side-loaded data, essentially. And I ended up using a window function to cache some of those lower-level queries. So I've already spent a bunch of time in this endpoint. Um, but now we're adding this new thing, and it was finally time to tackle this N plus 1, which, again, had been a problem this whole time, but the caching was sort of papering over that. And so finally dug in this week, uh, and it was it was an adventure. It was trickier than I wanted it to be. I think I have it working. I haven't actually fully deployed and tested, but we actually have really good test coverage over this endpoint, which I really appreciate. And actually, one of the really interesting tests was caching-specific. So when I introduced the content-aware cache invalidation, I really wanted to know that that was working, so I added a test. And I think you and I actually talked about it in a previous episode where I was talking about that, and you were on board with the addition of the test. I now am doubly on board because the test actually highlighted that I had broken caching entirely. (laughs) That's perhaps a misrepresentation. I would broken the caching such that the cache was constantly invalidating. So it would just keep querying and not actually use the cache at all, which is bad. That's the caching is broken, but the app wouldn't do a wrong thing. It would just be slower. And we probably figure that out pretty quickly because the load would spike and et cetera, et cetera. But it's really nice that a test caught that. Yes. Yeah. And so what I realized was this very fancy query that I was producing was not working with Rails's cache helper, where it's dynamically figuring out, like, let me grab the cache key from that. The resulting query that I ended up with was so weird, for lack of a better word, that Rails was not generating the cache key correctly. So I ended up having to circumvent that and just directly say, look at the top level categories as the way to compute that cache key. And then here's the query that we actually generate the data from. Yeah, the generation of the data was tricky and interesting. (laughs) The core performance issue is a bunch of N plus ones. So at multiple levels in that tree, from categories to courses to videos to teachers, just N plus ones all over the place. And I was really struggling to fix them. My typical method would be to go down, find the place where we're making the query, add an includes, add a nested includes. So like, get me the courses with their videos, with their teachers, and those sort of nested includes that we can do. Uh, But Rails just kept ignoring them and kept just making tons and tons and tons of queries. And eventually what I came to realize is we had... uh, query logic nested in the serializers. So there was a tree of serializers, like there was a category serializer at the top, which would serialize down the courses, which would serialize down the videos, which would, like, each of those had its own serializer. And in some of those, we had conditional logic as to hide this or show this or filter on this different variant. And as a result, anything that I set up in the top-level controller where I was starting this whole serialization would essentially be ignored because it was like, oh, no, 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 I need to get a different set of data. So I don't care if you told me to get it up at the top and includes a bunch of stuff. I'm starting fresh here. 
it was an interesting thing where Rails did the right thing for me. It was like, oh, I need to get the right data. I can't be certain that that's what I have now. So I'm going to go back to the database a thousand times and do that for you. It's like, thanks, Rails. But also, I don't know, let me know or give me a warning. (laughs) Ooh, yeah, that's tricky. Because then you really have to spend that time convincing yourself you're doing the right thing. And then exploring, be like, okay, someone is telling Rails something else. And Rails is listening to that instead of what I'm telling Rails to do. So yeah, that sounds like it would have taken some time to figure out. So then you dug into the serializers and you updated the queries there. Uh, I actually removed the queries from there. So one of the things... Even better. Yeah, I I think I'm coming around to this as like a rule that I will now follow is serializers should have essentially no logic. And that logic should be pulled all the way up to the top level endpoint. I'm sure that there are reasons why we would want the logic in the serializers. And it's interesting, every serializer library that I've worked with has the ability to say like, oh, you can define the method and customize the behavior and all of these things. But it turns out it breaks caching basically as a rule. And at the end of the day... What's nice is if these serializers are defined in a way such that anytime I want to render categories, whether it's categories with a bunch of things below it or not, I can do that. And if I want to filter down the set of child records, I can do that, but it's not the serializer that knows how to do that. It's the top-level endpoint controller that ideally makes one big query, gets all the data, but correctly filtered, and then just passes it down to the serializers to say, get me this field, format it in this way, get me these fields, get format them in this way, that sort of thing. Yep, I'm with you. That sounds like a, a nice approach so that then the next person isn't tricked and uh, thinks that they're writing the query correctly, but a serializer is actually overriding what they're trying to do. So did you have any trouble extracting that logic to the top level? Like, I'm wondering if there was anything so specific that was like, that's what made it feel right to put it in the serializer that then bringing it up was difficult. Yes, very much. (laughs) Very much so. Uh, (laughs) Such a good, (laughs) honest answer. And I love it when that happens, because that's the reality of our world. (laughs) Yes. No, it seemed once I got this idea, it's like, oh, okay, I just got to go fix this up at the top. But then I had to restructure a bunch of queries to make them fit. What ended up happening is we had a couple of places where we had handwritten SQL conditions. So where clauses that were saying where this value is some criteria or where that value is null. So like where blah is null was the actual string query that we had written there. But we had written them as like a literal string query or a a query segment. And as a result, they weren't correctly referencing the table names of the parent query because the parent query is going to rewrite the child table names in certain ways that make sense to it. So what I ended up having to do is for two different filters on child records in this hierarchy, I needed to properly define those subqueries as where clauses, a where clause with an or, so like Rails's or method, which was added somewhat recently, two, three years ago. I remember the long, long ago when we didn't even have or, but I had to rewrite in that. I had to make sure that I wasn't specifically referencing the table name anywhere, but I eventually got all of that. So I now have these scopes that I can use, and I then use the merge method on the active record relation so that I could merge those scopes in. So say like category includes all of the things that I want to include, merge and then uh, like course dot visible based on something so that's some scope on courses and merge video scope and then there's that video scope even then it didn't quite work there was one case where rails was complaining to me that it did not have a from clause for the relevant table I was like, I don't know, Rails, just like, isn't this what you do for me? Uh, I hate and so that I, error message. It can be so hard to debug. Yeah. 
I try to joins at that point because that's my answer is, okay, you need to know about this thing. I guess I'll joins it into the query, in which case it did the correct thing or the database thing, which was now the combinatoric explosion of for every course, there was a reference to the category. And so instead of having four categories, I now had 4,000. Whoops. That went very slowly. My computer got sad. Actually, the I was using Insomnia to like query and hit the endpoint, and Insomnia just stopped at the five megabyte mark and was like, "What are you doing? You don't. <laughs> you probably don't mean this. I will not continue past this point. I've downloaded five megabytes of JSON. This can't be what you want." I was like, "No, you're right. That is not what I want." Turns out the secret that I was looking for here was references. So Rails has a references keyword or class method, or I don't know which it actually is, but that allows me to inform Active Record, hey, you also need to pay attention to this table. And then with all of that, now everything works. Uh, although I did have a period of time where two of the tests were failing, and they were failing in this weird way, and I lost 30 minutes, and then finally I just kind of squinted at them, and I was like, I have the conditional reversed. Oh, no. This one is missing the records, and this one has too many records. What could possibly be wrong with my query? Oh, I inverted the <laughs> conditional. Whoops. <laughs> and that is time 7,000 in my career that I have done that, but here we are. I mean, to your credit, your brain had already gone through a bunch of work. So yeah, I've been on an adventure, uh, but eventually it worked. Although I will say the query that Rails generates here is bananas and ends up aliasing every one of the table names and every one of the column names. And it gets it all in one big query. It is not kind of partitioning it off and trying to say, like, grab these, grab those records, combine them together. It's one big query with everything and everything is rewritten. So I try and like read the query and I'm just squinting. I'm like, I don't. I don't know what you say. Uh, luckily, my tests tell me that you're doing the right thing, but I do really have to trust that things are going to work. And I wonder like, if someone were to change one of the serializers to not just reference an association directly, but instead do something else, I guess they would just break my eager loading, but they wouldn't break the functionality because they're now saying, I'm in charge of the filtering. I'm the captain now. And then they'd run with that. But it was interesting to end at that and be like, I don't know. I think it's right. <laughs> I couldn't look at the SQL query and determine that it was right. I had to use external verification, and I didn't like that as an endpoint, but it did work, and it's much, much, much faster. And now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Indeed. One of the greatest challenges we all face is taking all the information that's available and knowing where to focus. It's the same with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the most important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com forward slash bike shed. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com forward slash bike shed. Terms and conditions do apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Thanks to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode of the Bike Shed. I do have a question when you're talking about that if someone changes the serializer, how that could break the reference. So I'm imagining uh, when you're talking about extracting a lot of this logic up to the controller that then you placed it inside of like a query object and then tested that in isolation. 
And so now that you have that there, but it's separated from the controller, that then if someone changed something in the serializer, would that actually cause something to break in a way that a test would let you know? Well, so a couple of questions in there, and I like them all. Your assumption that I would extract this into a query object is very reasonable, but I did not do that in this case. And maybe it's just because I was feeling lazy at the end of the day, and I'd already been beaten by the system so many times. Partly the story I told myself was, this query is directly coupled to this endpoint. It is not a distinct reusable object in and of itself. This is the logic for how this endpoint gets its data. So I, I opted not to extract it out. I also, at this point, am only testing it from the level of the request specs for that endpoint. So it's a little bit of indirection there and definitely... If nothing else, it's it's a lot of overhead, and I end up having to deserialize and serialize JSON to determine if I've got the right record. So I don't feel great about that choice. Uh, I'm mostly trying to <laughs> explain it now and, and defend my perhaps lazy effort there. But that would probably be the right thing. But I didn't do that. I do have sufficient test coverage over the endpoint itself via request spec or a bunch of request specs that I feel like I'll know if anything changes. And again, if any of the serializers that this ends up using get changed, that will break one of those tests. Like if suddenly somebody's filtering the videos in a different way and just hiding every third one, like I will know that because we actually, one of the tests that we have is a snapshot test for the resulting JSON. And so that one would tell me. I've actually come to rely on that one more, which makes me feel complicated because I have a complicated history with uh, snapshot tests. But in this case, they seem to work well. You touched on something just a moment ago that I'm really interested in. Because, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you and I align on the whole, like, extract queries to query objects where we can. And then you touched on the idea that only this place is using that particular query. So then you decided not to abstract it out. But maybe if you're revisiting it, you would. That's a conversation that I find that I'll often have with folks about we have some sort of like, maybe it's not complex, but it's non-trivial logic that represents something about the system that's important to the system. And then the idea that it's because it's used in one spot, then it doesn't make sense to extract it out because it's not going to be reused by other places in the code base. And I'm always still eager to extract that out into its own class because I want to isolate the testing because I always want testing to be as easy as possible. And I have found that when I leave that logic inside of another class, it's often going to lead to that testing structure where I have too many concerns in my test, where I'm testing a lot about the original class. And then there's also perhaps some if statements or if this, then that kind of logic in the other bits. So then I have this large test file that's testing like the main bulk of the class. And then in addition to like that specific logic, so just using the query as an example of like, given like this data, I should get this data back, but then maybe I have like two or three of those scenarios. And I've seen that lead to like really large controller tests or other specs. So I just wanted to to pause on that because that's a conversation that I'm always eager to have because I'm like, I totally get it. We're not going to use it in other places. It really just belongs in this one area, but it's important to our system and I want to give it a name and I want to be able to test it in isolation. So if I'm looking at this bit of logic, I can just focus on what this does regardless of its bigger part that it plays in the system. And then it sounds like you have some really nice test coverage through the request specs as well, where it is still going to run through the whole system so we can verify all the bits are working together. Yeah, that was a mini masterclass in how to think about testing and extraction. And I feel a little bad, frankly, now because I didn't do the thing no. that you're suggesting. <laughs> I think I still side with what I've chosen, even in the light of your incredibly articulate summary of when one might want to extract. 
the reason is I do have two extracted pieces, which are the subqueries, the filters for some of those sub records. So the top level record, the category is not filtered in any way. We're just getting all of them. And then there's a bunch of includes, which are kind of weird to, I wouldn't test that necessarily anyway. That's a performance thing that shouldn't actually change the behavior of the system. But each of the sub queries that I'm merging in, those have separate test coverage in their parent class. They're a distinct thing that exists on their own, has their own name. We're merging them in by name, which I kind of like. So the actual resulting query that I have is like category.all includes bunch of includes stuff, but that's a very controller specific concept. And then references this table, merge this scope, merge this other scope, and that's it. And so looking at that, that composed query, like I don't know what to call it other than the query for this controller. It isn't a distinct thing. It isn't an idea in the system. It's the query for this controller. I think I'm still probably in defensive mode here, though, where I'm like, I probably <laughs> should have extracted a thing, and I didn't. I mean, maybe not, though. Like, I think you and I found an area where, like, we might slightly disagree on, like, when we would, like, move something to its own class. We've been searching for it for, like, a year and a half. We finally found it. <laughs> <laughs> and this might be one of those areas where I've been bit more by leaving something that feels important and testable grouped with something else that's also important and testable. And I just immediately lean towards let's separate it because I want the test to be very clear and easy. I just have I have fear of like the test growing and getting gnarly. And then it's very hard to like separate and untangle those two things. But you bring up a good point where I mean, sometimes it's hard to name these things. And I honestly don't know if that's a sign of like, well, that means we definitely should give it a name or if it's one of those, <laughs> let's wait. Let's wait until we know more about this and then maybe extract it out into a class for testing. This resistance either means we definitely should or definitely <laughs> should not extract this piece of... I know. What I just shared was so helpful. That <laughs> yeah, really was. I think that was a really interesting line of questioning around it. And I will definitely reconsider it because I haven't actually finished up the pull request or anything. So I'm going to squint at it for a while on Monday and see how I feel at that point. Uh, maybe replay that clip where you explained, again, so articulately, that I'm doing a bad thing. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but actually, the last thing that comes to mind here, though, is I, I really struggled with this. And some of this is just... I had to relearn a couple of pieces of Active Record. I had to think in SQL a little more than I normally do. I had to trust that Active Record was going to generate the right thing. I was testing somewhat indirectly through a different layer. I did have a conditional reversed. So some of it is just like it took a little while to get there, but this is probably a good endpoint. But the thing that I have in the back of my mind is if this were a GraphQL system, it would be... I think more obvious to me how to solve this. I've always found these deeply nested joins and left joins and join to this other thing and join through this table. Like those are so hard. I can't generate the query. I could not write by hand the query that Rails ended up generating. And that scares me a little bit. Whereas if I was in a GraphQL world, we just would end up taking a fundamentally different approach where each layer of this query gets handled on its own. And there's the batch loading idea that is popular in the GraphQL world where you just batch up all of those, what would be the N plus ones, wait until you know what all of them are, and then you query for all of the videos, and then you separately resolve them. And so it's a different pattern. It's a different way of thinking. But I actually personally, I find it much more intuitive. Thinking in joins is always something that I have to like force my brain to do. And thinking in terms of batch loading is like, oh, yeah, I just uh, I batch them up and I do them all at once. And then I pass out the results. And that totally makes sense. And I haven't actually tried it for this particular one. I think I still have the GraphQL branch around, so I could. But I, I wonder, like, people often think of performance as being one of the limiting factors or one of the difficult things to get right in GraphQL. But I actually think this would have been a case where it's easier to solve in GraphQL. 
again, going back to the earlier conversation, still not worth the effort of switching, but just sort of an interesting performance case study around the differences. Yeah, I can see that perspective as to when you're solving this problem, it's easier to think about it in terms of like you need these individual pieces, but then scoped to like a particular user versus you have to like get all of the data at once using joins. And I'm with you. I always have to look that up at like the Venn diagram. I'm like, what am I doing here? Which one do I want? Yeah, that that is an interesting idea if it would be easier to approach this with GraphQL versus having one endpoint that's returning so much data. Yeah. I'll be intrigued to hear your thoughts on if you decide to play around with the GraphQL branch and if that ends up being easier. Or, I mean, you're busy. I understand if you decide to move on and call it done. Going to be honest, I probably will do that one. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, though, I do want to revisit this type of performance consideration in a GraphQL system more seriously. Every GraphQL system I've worked on, I've had to use that, the batch loading stuff, because you just have to. GraphQL has N plus one guaranteed. It's pretty easy to do and includes for a like one level SQL query situation or like a REST endpoint. GraphQL, you can't really do that. It just doesn't map in the same way. And so you end up in the world of batch loading just out of the gate. And so I've definitely used it before and it's felt nice and ergonomic and straightforward, but um, not this was a big, this is a very big query. A lot of stuff going on. So changing gears just a little bit away from uh, performance, this is something that kind of circling back to my earlier comment about how I just have a couple weeks left with my clients. So I'm thinking about wins that I would like to achieve before I move on to my next project. And one of those is looking for dead or unused code in the system, because there's a really cool project that's written by Josh Clayton, who's our managing director in the Boston office, that when you run this program, it's going to use C tags to then find code that it believes is not called anywhere in the system, and therefore is code that's not actually in use and can be removed. It's a pretty cool program. If anyone's interested in it, its website is unused.codes. And Josh has some nice instructions that walk you through on how to get started. You do need C tags to be up and running. I ran into that issue earlier, even though I have the thoughtbot.files and that pulls in C tags for me. And then I can generate C tags for a file. For anyone that's not familiar with C tags, it's a program that will scan through your code base and it will produce an index of the keywords. So it's very helpful in terms of like we use it a lot for Vim. So it can help you navigate quickly in a code base to then find like where a method is defined. So then C tags is helpful when it's also looking and building that index of all the different methods and then seeing how many times that method is being called. And I think Josh has had some fun where he's rewritten it in Haskell recently and improved its performance. So it's really fast and it provides a really nice summary too. It also makes your computer very warm, which is a feature that I enjoy whenever a program is like, I'm going to just use all of the resources available here to just, just get this done. And then the computer gets very hot and the fan kicks in. I'm like, all right, yeah, we're doing something. <laughs> we're, do- we're doing some real work. Uh, I have a complaint about warm computers, but we can come back to that later. <laughs> so an example, if you run uh, unused, uh, so I just ran it for a project and it has a really nice summary where it's going to tell me the number of tokens that were found. I'm not actually sure what the tokens reference, but it talks about the number of files. You can also skip a directory if you'd like. So in this case, we have the Rails application and then we have the Ember application. So for the first pass, I decided to ignore the Ember application and just focus on Rails changes. And then it prints out each method and then the reason that the unused thinks it should be removed. So like an example, 
example would be only one occurrence exist. It'll tell you then where it's defined. So I think from here, I can just then look through all the different methods that unused found and then do a human evaluation and say, okay, I agree with you. Let's take this out and then run the test. I don't know if there's a way that I could just run a command that would then rip all this out for me and create a PR. If Josh is listening to this, he's probably thinking, Steph, it already does a lot. (laughs) It doesn't seem like that much more, though. It seems like a lot more. It does seem like a lot more. But yeah, it's a really cool program. And um, it's been around for a while. And I've seen Josh use it on a number of programs where then he'll issue a PR and remove a bunch of dead code. So I'm excited to to use it on all the different projects that I join, just because it's a really like, it's one of those really nice wins, where you can like identify code that's no longer in use, and then just rip it out. You might be able to get to the mythical net negative lines of code on the project. Who knows if you find some big uh, mine of unused code. And she's like, all right, cool. Negative 100,000. Here we go. (laughs) I have to say for as large as this application is, there doesn't seem to be like as many references to where something is defined once, but doesn't seem to be in used. Uh, So I'm fairly impressed with like the the current status. But yeah, hopefully one day I'll achieve the net negative lines of code with using unused. I'll keep you up to date on how this one goes. So on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.